0: Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, what I call the four I's, information, inputs, infrastructure, and insight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter, and to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Burnout is a state of physical and emotional exhaustion as a result of prolonged stress. While it can really affect anyone, medical professionals are some of the most at risk. Our guest today is retired neonatologist and author of the 2020 book, So Many Babies, Dr. Susan Landers. Susan is working to help people better understand burnout, the risks, the causes, and how to address it. The topic is close to her heart because she's experienced burnout herself as a working mother, as an intensive care doctor, and as a human. Susan, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, Lucy, it's my pleasure. I appreciate
0: being here. Let's start by defining neonatologist. It's a fancy word. I think people think of little people, babies, sick, ICU.
1: Tell me exactly what neonatology is. A neonatologist is a pediatrician who is specialized in caring for critically ill newborns and small premature infants. A neonatologist works predominantly in the intensive care nursery called the NICU.
0: It's a pretty intense field. You're seeing the sickest babies. You are seeing the most fragile new lives. And you're also dealing with parents who are often devastated, exhausted, and incredibly stressed. What drew you to this intense field?
1: I love critical care. I fell in love with that when I was a pediatric resident. And I liked obstetrics, but mostly what I liked about obstetrics was the mother-baby aspects. Neonatology applied my love for working with mothers and babies and my need to be active in a critical care unit. So both aspects of the field drew me to neonatology.
0: You describe in your book this need to care for people at their most vulnerable and the intensity of the work emotionally, physically, and then, of course, the training and the hours you put in as a doctor. What was that like as a human being having to manage other people's stress while you're managing your
1: own? Initially, Lucy, it was doable. I was married to a pediatric nephrologist. We both enjoyed our work, lots of hours in the hospital. And we could bounce our concerns off each other in the evening. Before I had children, it was much easier to deal with the stresses of the ICU. And even after I had children and was learning to balance being a mother and being a full-time working doctor, I still could handle it. But there were clearly times when a difficult case, a baby that was not responding to treatment, a difficult parent, a mother who was getting depressed, an ethical situation, those kinds of cases did crop up. And it was hard to deal with that. Mostly, I had a great support system of other women physicians in NEO and in the pediatric ICU and in other pediatric subspecialties. I started out my practice at Texas Children's Hospital, and there were hundreds of women in that practice. We all got married at the same time, we all had babies at the same time, and it was really a wonderful support system for managing being a busy doctor and being a mom. I think I did several things to deal with all the stress. I think I unloaded a lot on my husband. I had a great friend support system. And I was a banshee about exercise and running. And that allowed me in the early years to control my stress level. But I always loved the NICU. It's so exciting. There are so many surprises, and you're running to high risk deliveries, and all of a sudden you'll get a set of 26 week twins or 28 week triplets. And every day there's a challenge thrown at you. And I think in retrospect, Lucy, what was going on was epinephrine surges. I think I was getting high off the excitement and the life and death aspects of being in the ICU. And when you're younger, that feels really great. It feels really great to do something, to swoop in and make a difference in how a baby's treatment is going. But as the years went on, it became a little more wear and tear. Yeah, I mean, I
0: think it's interesting you describe the adrenaline and the epinephrine, the adrenaline being the hormone that we all make. It comes from our adrenal glands, and it's responsible for that fight or flight access, the chemicals that flood our veins and help us run from danger, and also, in your case, save a baby's life at those critical moments. I think it's true that repeated revving of the engine of adrenaline, repeated flooding of our veins with adrenaline is fatiguing. Yes. Whether it's because of stacked traumas or just living in a state of heightened alertness, because of an occupational situation, it's fatiguing to the body to be constantly on and constantly alert and constantly stimulated by those stress hormones. So it's not surprising to me that someone like you would experience what you call burnout. I think it's also important to make clear that burnout isn't unique to the medical profession. Right. You and I have talked about burnout. I actually wrote a piece for The Atlantic last year about burnout, because burnout is sort of an occupational hazard of being human in the modern era, I think. It's easy to get burned out when we expect so much of ourselves, when we are, quote, burning the candle at both ends. Mm -hmm. What I see in my office, I'm not a neonatologist. I see people, adolescents and young adults and adult adults, struggling quite a lot with burnout. From parenting, caregiving, working, in whatever form they are existing, people experience burnout not uncommonly because of the demands of on our lives, and particularly after the pandemic or during the pandemic. I guess my point is that I think anybody is susceptible to burnout, and I think what you've done so beautifully, Susan, is help make people aware of the risks. I wish I had had your book when I was a medical resident in training, because I had my first son when I was an intern, which was very, very stressful and hard. And in retrospect, I really don't know how I made it through. You know, there was really no template Right. back then. No one else in my program had been pregnant, at least that I knew of. You know, I think as women in particular, and then women who are caregivers, and women who are caregivers in the field of medicine, it's sometimes hard to put ourselves at the top of the list or to acknowledge that caregivers need care.
1: Early on in my career, When I had my three children within the first seven years, I really used my friends, some in stressful fields, some not, to bounce things off of. And that was a huge sense of support and community and connection. And I used my husband and I used my children as relief. When I wasn't in the hospital, I was doing something with my kids. Hugging, reading, playing soccer, going to the park, whatever. Every moment I was not at the hospital, I was with my children. And so I felt in the early years like I had enough pressure release valves. Burnout didn't really affect me until I changed jobs in my mid 40s. And I didn't like my job. It was new, it was a new NICU, new rules. I didn't have my support system around me. My kids were all in different schools. Everybody needed something different. It was so much more busy. And that's when I learned, I think that's when I was burned out as a working mother more than as a physician because I was just overwhelmed. I was doing too much. And I do like to admit to that because I think a lot of overachieving women, type A, perfectionistic tendencies. We want to be the best moms we can be. Some of us start out wanting to be super mom like I did, but we want to be good moms and we want to do the right thing for our kids. But we also like our work and our job may make us feel very fulfilled. And those are good things. Raising children to be independent, happy and healthy can be done if you have a good job in which you're fulfilled. And so I learned after that burnout period in my 40s that I could only do so much. And I started making choices. I started choosing what research projects I wanted to do. I started choosing what things at the kids' school I wanted to do. I started choosing to go out with my husband on a date night once a week. I made specific choices to exercise, to take a yoga class with a friend, I learned the hard way how to take care of myself. And that's how I got through my working mother burnout in my forties. And I think that in retrospect, and, and I had a good psychotherapist, he helped. He said, what are your priorities? And I listed all my priorities. And he said, there's something wrong with this list. And I said, what's wrong with the list? I've got everything here. I've got all my priorities listed. And he said, you didn't put yourself on the list. It was one of the first things he said to me that made me realize I cannot do all this without taking care of myself. So there I was with three little kids and I actually learned how to take care of myself. And I think a lot of moms now are having trouble Getting out of the pandemic mentality where they were doing everything household chores, remote learning, worrying about vaccines, worrying about getting sick, worrying about grandparents. They're exhausted and they haven't been able to take care of themselves during this time. And it's going to take, I think, stepping back, looking at their priority list, putting themselves on that list and learning how to take care of themselves. I think that's right. I think there's guilt for a lot of
0: women about taking care of ourselves. Like we use this word self-care in the modern lexicon so frequently it's an important word because self-care is important. But I think for a lot of people, it's looked at as a luxury, Let's also acknowledge it is a luxury to be able to have the time, energy and resources to take care of oneself. But I also think it's important to recognize there are ways to take care of ourselves that are not expensive or frivolous. Taking care of ourselves like we take care of our, our kids, our parents, our work is not indulgent. It is really a necessity of being human. It also doesn't have to be fancy or frivolous. Yes, I love getting a pedicure. I love getting a pedicure because of the foot massage. I actually don't care about the <laughs> nails, but the foot massage to me is like one of life's wonderful things. Yes. But self-care can also simply be a grace and a forgiveness for being human. It can be permission to not have a busy brain all the time, permission to not be in do-do-do mode. It can be permission to get in bed at eight o'clock one night and go to bed before anybody else is asleep. It doesn't have to involve money necessarily. It's, it can be right. an aware, a self-awareness and a
1: self-compassion, if you will. I discovered that taking a walk in nature was one of the best things for me because I felt everything unloaded. My mind was free. I could think. There was absolutely no stress. And that has always been for me one of my main methods of self care. I do love exercise still. I love keeping a gratitude journal. I did not start doing that until I was much older, but it's really a very effective thing where you have to write down what you're grateful for. And someone recently taught me, well, why don't you write down something good about yourself? You know, we're so hard on ourselves. And I said, well, that's a really great idea when you have to sit down and give yourself grace and give yourself compassion and say, I'm really good at this, or I'm really good at that. And so if I screw up over here, it doesn't matter as much because I am a good mom and I am a good wife and I do a wonderful job as a doctor. And those are all hard things to do all at once. It takes a lot of juggling. And to be able to say to yourself, Lucy, you're doing a lot right now. You've got a podcast. You've got a practice. You've got three children. You've got a marriage. That is a lot. If you take care of yourself, it's great because you deserve it. You deserve to get in the neighbor's pool when they're out of town.
0: (laughs) well, thank you. I'm just going to do that again. (laughs) I will tell you the best thing is having a neighbor with a pool who's out of town all summer. That's so funny. You saw my Instagram post. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Literally jumping in that pool for five minutes after work every day in the last two weeks has been like amazing. I don't even swim. I just sit there and like float and just zone out.
1: Yes. It's so different. It's just unloading the stress, even a little bit at a time each day. And I got that fix from hugging children and playing t-ball in the yard and playing football in the yard and things like that, riding bikes. It was always just pure pleasure to be with my kids. You know, that dwindles a little bit as they get up towards the teenage years. But in the younger years, it's fun. You go out and you play with them. You go to the playground. And I used things like that to unload my stress when I had working mother burnout.
0: I am with you on enjoying time with the kids. There are two things I want to say about it. One is I'm much better at the intellectual exercises, the conversations. So I particularly love the teenage years, not every minute of it, to be clear. I just really enjoy kind of getting to know my kids as pre-adults and adults. They're teenagers once 20. I find that so rewarding, more rewarding to me than playing with the Legos and doing the sort of choo-choo-choo train when they were little. Secondly, I think it's also okay to give ourselves permission as mothers to find joy outside of being with our kids. Yes. In other words, you know, I'm with people all day long, talking to people, counseling people, delivering care, in conversation, and I really need alone time. I love talking with my kids. I love my friends. I'm really an extrovert, but I also need time alone to recharge. And I think as moms, we need to give ourselves permission to carve that time out. Yes. And that's not to say you don't love your kids. It's to say that you need time for yourself to recharge. At least right. I do. And then the next thing I wanted to talk about is this concept of the good enough mother. You know, depending on how we're raised, depending on our childhood and, and our own mother's We sometimes have a vision of what we should be as a mom and how we should live, what we should provide emotionally, physically for our kids. I think it's important to realize that it's taken me a while to realize this myself, that there are many ways to be a mother and there's no right way to do it the goal of parenting or one of the goals of parenting to me is not to make your kids happy all the time. In fact, not to make them feel any particular way is to let them be them to think of them as like mounds of clay that are going to shape themselves. Like I'm there to watch them grow into who they are, and to love support, clothe, feed and give them my car keys when they ask for them and to see who they become. I'm not there to be the sculptor creating them in my mind's eye how I think they should be. Right. And actually, I've learned so much from my kids because they're not mini me's or mini versions of my husband. They are their own people. So I think I don't know. It's a long way of saying there's a lot of mom guilt out there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to give ourselves as mothers some permission to be imperfect And to recognize that a lot of parenting is about just luck and circumstance. Showing up. And showing up. (laughs) And that so much of who they are is kind of hardwired. And to not give ourselves such a hard time if the kids aren't exactly the way we thought they would be or planned it or, and then there's beauty in the fact that they are not us.
1: I agree. I think you have defined beautifully what a good enough mother is. We all start out wanting to be perfect mothers. We read the books, we take the courses, we talk to our friends. And then when reality sets in, if we're lucky enough to have a job that we enjoy, that we like, we learn that we can't be with our children all the time, that we're at work. You have to go home when somebody's sick and you have to change your schedule when the need arises. But there's a lot of time that working mothers are not with their children, and it's not harmful to their children. I remember being on maternity leave, especially my third one, and feeling a little bored. And my husband saying, what's wrong? I said, oh, I'm sorry. I want to go back to work. (laughs) I mean, this baby's wonderful. Breastfeeding's wonderful. Everything's fine. I love having everybody here, but it's really kind of boring. And so that's me. That's not everybody else. That's me. I wanted to go back to the hospital and take care of some sick kids. But I also love my children. And I am very attentive when I'm around them. And I think being a good enough mother is doing both and not being so hard on yourself that you like your job, that you like being an internist in Washington, D.C. I loved being a neonatologist. And I think my three kids all turned out beautifully. One's a cinematographer. One is a pediatric intensive care nurse. One's still in college they're all doing fine. They're all different. They're very independent. I just think working mothers need to give themselves a break. You talked about accepting grace. I don't think we give ourselves enough grace for doing everything that we do. It's very difficult. It's hard to manage all the things. We don't think like men. We think like women. We act like mothers. We always have a list of things we have to do, a list in our mind, if not on paper.
0: That's so true. I take comfort in the fact that based on my experience with people as a doctor, I really believe this. People are incredibly resilient and adaptable and capable. Yes. And I think I have to believe this, but I actually do believe this, is that because I'm at work, even if I had the inclination to be a micromanaging mom, I really can't be because I'm at work. And so my kids have had to learn how to do laundry, how to do the dishes, get up on time to go to school. I just think that kids need to be able to fend for themselves in many ways. And my gift to them is, I hope, an ability to use the resources within themselves to then carry with them through life. And I mean, to me, happiness is born out of being self-sufficient and, of course, being loved unconditionally by their parents.
1: My younger daughter said, Mom, I didn't think your working was very much a problem, except when you would come home after being on call for 24 hours. And sometimes you were so sleepy that you would take a nap first and not ask me how my day was or how things were going and it hurt my feelings. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that. But I was so sleepy. I was so tired. I had to go take a nap. And then after my nap, I chatted with her. She said, that was really the only thing I remember about your being gone. It was that sometimes when you came home, you might be unavailable for a short period of time. And that really broke my heart because there were side effects from being an intensive care doc that spilled over into my being a mom. If you're too tired to listen to your kid, that's pretty darn tired. So I do regret some of those work hours, some of those long call nights, being unavailable when they were teenagers, if they had something come up urgently. They could always get me on my pager and later on my cell phone, but sometimes I was stuck in the hospital and that felt horrible. It really was torture. Talk about mom guilt. That was my main source of mom guilt and saying, I ran into a tree. And I said, I'm sorry. Just wait till dad gets home. He'll help you. I'm in the middle of something. I got to go put in a chest tube. And so she said, mom, what do I do? I said, well, just sit there. I'll call your father. He'll come. It felt terrible. It feels terrible to be at work yeah, when your kids need you. But she was okay, and she got through it, and her father came and bailed her out, and everything was fine.
0: Yeah, I think it's important and great that she was able to articulate that to you, to say, this is how I felt, and to be honest about it.
1: Oh, I've always been so big on Let's talk about our feelings.
0: In my office at work, I have this poster framed that's the periodic table of the emotions. So, you know, the periodic table of of the elements. This is the periodic table of emotions. The premise being that we tend to think that there are three emotions, like the primary colors, happy, sad, mad, when actually there's a whole continuum and spectrum of emotions from envy and rage and insecurity. I mean, all these sort of resentment, I wouldn't take away the insecurity one because it's not an emotion, but envy and rage to guilt and shame that are so much more complex. And the ability to recognize those feelings and then name them can really help us direct either our self-compassion or the way we Act in the world and the way we feel in our bodies and just in our everyday lives. So it's really important to me. My kids were making fun of me with it. I brought home like a little version of it to show them. They were like, Mom, that's so, that's so you. And uh, (laughs) and they were laughing. And actually, my middle child, George, who's very kind of logical, he was like, But mom, are you saying that anger is not? A valid emotion because I was saying how anger is a I was saying to the kids that in explaining this periodic table of the emotions that anger is, of course, a valid emotion, but it also can be a front for other more complex, nuanced feelings, sad, fear, Yeah. Fear. Like sometimes when I feel afraid, I get Uh angry. And anger is a handy emotion. It's an action oriented emotion. It's like, aha, I'm going to do something. I'm going to fight the dragon. I'm going to do something to right the wrong. And so George was arguing with me saying, well, are you saying that anger isn't valid? Are you saying that, you know, sometimes anger is just anger? And I'm like, absolutely. Anger can sometimes just be anger. It doesn't have to be a front for something else. So anyway, the point is we got into this long conversation. We kind of intellectual dissection of different emotions. And so I said at the the end of the conversation, I was like, oh, so you're making fun of me for having this periodic table. But it's obviously generated a lot of interest around (laughs) the table here. So I think it's good to talk about these things. I think excavating those feelings can lead to some important self-awareness.
1: Yes. And we teach our children how to deal with emotions, with our behavior. We are models for our children. When I would yell at my kids, if I was tired, I would yell. And then I would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I really didn't mean to yell at you. I'm just so tired. And let's do this. I learned, because I had a father that yelled a lot, but Mm. I learned early on in my being a parent, that yelling was where I went when I was short-tempered or exhausted. I learned how to apologize for it. And my kids grew up accepting that, that, oh, mom's yelling, watch out, she needs to go take a nap or something. You had the
0: self-awareness to know that the yelling was a sort of default behavior that wasn't really about the kids as much as it was about just feeling fried and exhausted. Exactly. It's important to communicate that and to apologize in front of them and say, yes. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm human too. I make mistakes. That's really what my take on the human condition is with regards to being a doctor, caring for people's whole health, is that when we can identify the behavioral manifestations of emotional states, then mm-hmm. we can sort of have more agency over our behavior. We can identify that- yes exhaustion, fatigue, and vulnerability can lead us to yell and scream at our kids or cut someone off in traffic or drink too much alcohol or what have you, then we can work on the internal feelings that are hard instead of ignoring the root causes of behaviors we wish we didn't have. Exactly. Susan, you described burnout in your 60s. I'd love to hear about that. And I'd love to hear about
1: what you did to try to solve for it. Lucy, I was working too much. My kids were off at college, out of the house, or planning on getting married. I was working about 50 or 60 hours a week. If someone needed a schedule covered, I would volunteer because I didn't have much else going on. We had a few ethically challenging cases in the NICU at that time a father who wanted everything done to a baby who was pretty devastated. It really became kind of a heavy burden for me, and I couldn't reach this father. I began to feel physical exhaustion from working too many hours. I began to feel emotionally overwhelmed. I couldn't solve the problem. I couldn't convince this parent of what I thought we should do. I started to dread going to work. I had never, ever dreaded going to work before. And I became very negative. The nurse practitioner said, what is wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I was just cynical and negative. One of my partners came up and said, you don't seem like yourself. You're just not as compassionate as you used to be. Big red flag, Mm. huge red flag. I figured out, I remember telling my husband, drinking a glass of wine at night because my nerves were on edge and I was excessively tired and I couldn't sleep well. And I said, Philip, I don't feel like I'm making a difference anymore. That was it. Healthcare givers really know that they are burnt out when they feel like they are no longer making a difference. It's not just depersonalization, negativism, cynicism, physical and emotional exhaustion. It is feeling like you do not make a difference. Lack of agency. Agency, yes. And when I felt that way, I talked with my husband and said, oh my God, I'm burnt out. I talked to a psychotherapist and said, I feel awful. I need to get through all these issues. And she helped me a lot. At the same time, my practice was planning to cover a low risk labor and delivery service. And none of my partners wanted to go do that because they thought it would be boring. And I said, I volunteer. I cut my hours back to 35 a week, part time. I went to take care of normal newborns and talked to new moms about breastfeeding and safe sleep, and met grandparents and siblings, and everything was happy and we had a little intermediate care nursery, and instantly my fatigue lifted. I still was kind of feeling negative. I started taking piano lessons. Instantly, that helped. I started stitching again, cross-stitch, which I've always found to be very meditative. That helped a lot. I began exercising in earnest, running usually outside in nature, Fast walking, some running, and I slowly healed. The process took a while. I have to tell you, it took more than a year and a half to really get back to feeling really good. I remembered why I loved babies. I remembered why I loved mothers and babies. I had a great time in the nursery talking to new moms, and it was just so satisfying to not be constantly on edge. As I look back on it now, all the things that I did to recover are things that are good for us. Playing music, listening to music, meditation, having a hobby, walking out in nature, exercising. I went out to lunch with friends. I hadn't done that in a long, long time. And so I figured out that to get better, I had to do the things that took care of me, Mm. and I did get better.
0: It's a great story and lesson, and what's also interesting to me, Susan, is none of the things that you felt and none of the things that you did are measurable in a blood test, a CAT scan, in lab work, yet are exceedingly important in your health. So what I'm trying to help people who are listening to this today understand is that that is part of your health. Yes. Feeling burned out, feeling depersonalized, feeling that compassion fatigue, that lack of agency, whether it's professionally or personally, and the way that might make you gravitate towards wine at the end of the day, feel sleepless, agitated, just not like yourself. That is your health, too. Health is about the 364 days that you're not in the doctor's office for your checkup. It's so important for people to recognize that our mental and our physical health are inseparable. That mental health matters. It's not just a hashtag. The way you feel in your body, the way you manage stress, the way you manage burnout, in your case, Susan, that is part of health. Not to mention that walking, doing yoga... Those things are good for your skeleton, they're good for your cholesterol, they're good for right, weight right. management also but they arguably more importantly are important for your well-being. It's interesting to me that in the modern world, you know, medicine I think is failing people in so many ways, particularly in the sense that medicine seems to define health as having good lab work and, you know, not dying. Not dying is good but so is not having the insight, awareness, and agency about our everyday mental health. Let me pose this question to you. The way I think about patients is that we are the complex sum of different components. I call it the four eyes: Information, basically our data, things you can measure. Inputs, the things we put into our bodies, whether it's Kale and quinoa, or cigarettes and alcohol, or marijuana and cocaine. Our infrastructure, so our skeletal health, meaning like we have a vehicle to drive us through life. We cannot trade in our skeletons like we can our Hondas. We have to take care of the structure that we live in. The fourth I is insight insight into our own mental health, our relationship with food, alcohol, work, kids, self. And our insight then into how those different eyes talk to each other. So if you have a hip injury that you're not dealing with and you're taking too much Advil that's gonna irritate your liver, the chronic pain might cause you to feel depressed, the inactivity as a result of the hip pain might make you depressed and the depression might make you drink more and the Advil and the alcohol interact. In other words, if I'm looking at a patient from a bird's eye view and seeing the four eyes and helping them then understand how the different components interact with each other, then I'm essentially handing them insight into their own ecosystem and then hopefully giving them some tools to manage whatever component is on the fritz, if you will.
1: I love that because without insight, if my partner had not come up to me and said, you don't seem like yourself, have you lost your compassion? I wouldn't have said, wait a minute and stopped and looked back. What is wrong? What have I done? What have I allowed to overtake me? And that's why you need a coach and
0: a guide. It doesn't have to be a doctor. It doesn't have to be a paid professional even. It can be a spouse. It can be a coworker. Someone to put a mirror up to your face so that you can look at yourself and face realities that
1: sometimes you may not know exist somebody to say, are you okay? You don't seem like yourself. Can we talk about it?
0: Are you okay? Because and the answer isn't either yes or no, although our temptation is to say, yes, I'm okay. But the answer to the question, are you okay, is nuanced, complex, and layered. Yes. And if we can mine that question and mine it along different axes, the four eyes are we okay from a laboratory and medical data standpoint? Are we okay from an input? Are we eating too much sugar? Are we eating too little? Are we binge eating? Are we consuming too much caffeine? Are you okay skeletally? I mean, do you have chronic pain? Do you have a balance problem that puts you at higher risk for falls and osteoporosis and fractures? And do you have insight about your own ability to care for your body and mind and usually the answer is not yes on all fronts. And if it's yes on all fronts, please write to me and tell me, <laughs> tell me what you're smoking. Because there's no one who's got that all figured out. In fact, I think of people as like, you know, the treble and bass on your stereo. The lines are kind of always moving up and down. We're dynamic. And so right. the we're que- fine tuning. The question is to are you OK isn't yes or no. It's where are you on the various axes vis-a-vis mental and physical health? Yes. So my question I totally to totally agree with you. My question to you on that long intro is then which part of that system, the four eyes, which area are you most focused on now as someone who is recovering from burnout, who's got a lot of insight? What do you work on now? I mean, do you have a whole hip injury? Are you working on cutting back on alcohol? Not that it sounds like you have an alcohol problem, you just like wine and are you working on growing your insight? Or are you working on something
1: completely? physical, and medical that's isolated from emotional health. I have a very mild osteoporosis and I do strength training and Pilates and work out and my bone densities are stable. This is the only body I have and I'm not going to get turned into a pretzel like my poor mother was. I stopped drinking alcohol. It wasn't serving me well. It was making me woozy and I didn't sleep well and it didn't help anything. And I'm using my insight to talk to younger women about the choices that they have. Mm, I love it. When they work and when they're mothers and with their partner and in their lives. I think I want to give younger women a chance to discover long before I ever did that taking care of themselves is so important and it's not selfish. Self-care is not selfish. It is a buzzword, but it's not selfish.
0: I think that the insight into your own life and how you've managed burnout and stress and perfectionism vis-a-vis parenting is so crucial. I think one of the ingredients in health is finding purpose and meaning. And I think focusing on others and educating others and sharing your knowledge with other people is, I'm imagining, very meaningful and purposeful for you. It is. It, gives it you is pleasure. right now.
1: Yeah. Right. Because I'm not in the ICU. There's no more excitement. So what gives me pleasure now is reaching out to others. If you think
0: about what the ingredients are for a happy life, you know, some people think it's wealth and power and material success. But for most people, it's about having an impact and finding meaning and purpose beyond
1: themselves. Exactly. And that,
0: again, is not measurable on a blood test. So I'm not your doctor. I haven't looked at your blood levels, but I can tell you that you're pretty darn healthy from the inside out, Susan Landers. And I'm just so grateful that you were willing to talk
1: to me today. Oh, this has been so much fun. I love what you're doing. I love the podcast. I listen to it all the time. I love your Instagram post. I love your live videos. Oh, thank you. And you should keep it
0: up. Well, thank you. And keep up the good work with what you're doing, Susan. Thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals, which should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C. Thank you.